We've headed into the book of Esther this summer where you can see the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. But this book of Esther also brings into view something that we face here in this world that keeps us frustrated and even feeling overwhelmed at times. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the pervasive and unrelenting press of evil in this world that sometimes even looks like it has the upper hand and even at times makes us think it is going to prevail. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2 I'm going to begin reading now in verse 19, Esther 2, 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, okay, what's going on? What I already taught, tried to tell you, this is not a great guy. He has crowned Vashti. I mean, he has crowned Esther, the new queen. Doesn't matter. He's like, oh, I love this. Let's go get some more women. So even though she's queen, she may not see him that often at all. He's just still, that works so well. Let's do another beauty contest. Virgins were gathered together the second time. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, don't make a mistake here. In that day, the king's gate was a ginormous open courtyard where business was transacted. Mordecai's not just being lazy. It means he probably has some kind of official office in Ahasuerus' administration. Maybe Esther got it for him. I don't know. But he's in the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. 
But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur. That is, they cast lots, dice, you guys. They're throwing dice. And this is how they made decisions in that day. It was very common. They were very into spiritual witchcraft kind of stuff. They would throw dice to see what's the best day to do a certain thing. So Haman's throwing dice to figure out when do I want this day of annihilation to take place. Before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, once he had his date, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. This is a very attractive proposition. Remember I told you, you can learn about what's happening in that day from the Bible as well as secular history. Why? Because the Bible is actually true. Hello, not like the Book of Mormon. Everything matches up. And what you'll find is that King Ahasuerus' treasuries were depleted from a losing war he had just fought trying to take over Greece. 10,000 talents is two-thirds Two-thirds of the annual income of the Persian Empire at that time. Very attractive. Where's Haman going to get this? Just like Hitler, he's going to get it from the Jews. When he plunders them and kills them, he's going to take all their stuff. He's making a very attractive offer here to the king. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money's given to you. So when you get all this from the Jews, yep, do what you said. And the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over the provinces. Remember, there's 127 provinces. Big kingdom from Ethiopia to India. Lots of different languages. Was written to the king's satraps, to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples. To every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Again, I want to help you in the times we live. Fables are not written this way. The Bible is just full of specific dates and places and people because it's true. That's why it goes into such details. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. That's where the king lives. That's where Mordecai is serving in the gate. 
And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Can you imagine? I need it going out like this. Annihilate. Here's the date and be ready to annihilate all Jews, men, women, children, every single one of them. So what can we learn about evil in our world, which I hope you realize has been with us since the introduction of sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3? This is not a new thing, you guys. Evil has been with us since the introduction of sin in Genesis 3. So what can we learn about it? Number one, the powers of this world. You need to realize the powers of this world are going to keep on promoting evil people. Get used to it. They're gonna keep doing this. Look at what I'm talking about in chapter three, verse one. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Yikes. I mean, after reading what kind of man this is in this chapter... It's shocking, shocking that he's the one that gets promoted and promoted in a big, big way. Now think about it. Notice how the end of chapter two ended and chapter three just says, after these things he promoted, doesn't it seem like it would be saying, after these things, what things? This assassination plot was discovered and reported by Mordecai. You expect chapter three to begin and the king promoted, say it, Mordecai makes sense to us. Not how the world works. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever seen things like this happen? That doesn't make sense. Welcome to a fallen, broken world that's fueled and driven by evil. Evil. Mordecai's just saved the king's life. That's all. And if you think about it, he could have taken this news And just said, I'm not going to do anything about that. I hope he does get killed. I hate the man. He took my cousin Esther that I've been raising. She's in there and that. She's dealing with him. He didn't. He went and reported this assassination plot by some of his own secret service agents. He does the right thing for a wicked king. But gets no reward, no word of thanks. While Haman gets promoted. For no reason that we're told. And yet, ooh, here's what I want you to see because it's all through the Bible. I hope you made note of as I read the chapter, what Mordecai did does get documented and recorded in the King's Chronicles. Spoiler alert. This is going to come back later. Later in Esther, this is a piece that's going to come back in a big, big way. You're going to see later, you guys, how Haman's promotion and Mordecai's being overlooked for the moment is all a part of God's perfect timing. We tend to think, God, are you paying attention? Are you absent-minded? Are you not on it? God is always on it, you guys. He just doesn't live in the moment or for the moment. This is going to come back. It's all a part of God's perfect timing because God is always doing and seeing far more than we can. Listen, 
We live in the moment because we're finite. We have no other choice. Our problem, we expect to be rewarded quickly in the moment for the moment. Real quick. I just did this. Seems like right now. And so we're, we're, we're fond of either saying out loud or thinking, God, don't you see? Let me help you. Let me tell you what God's answer is every time you say that or think that. Yes, I see that and far more than you do. We live in the moment and expect it to be rewarded in the moment. God is infinite, therefore he lives with eternity in view and sees the beginning from the end and therefore is always doing and seeing and up to far more than you could ever imagine. We live in the right now. He lives in yesterday, now, and next, all at the same time. All at the same time. All at the same time. So he's always doing and seeing and up to far more than you could imagine. Let me put it to you this way. If you could know what he knows, do you think you know everything he knows? Say it louder. No. Say it like you believe that. No. Yeah. If you could know what he knows and you could see what he sees. Do you see everything he sees? Louder again. If you could know what he knows and see what he sees, you would do what he does every time. Now, some of you don't believe that. You're like, oh, he needs my help. He makes such poor decisions. He treats people so poorly. Oh, if just he would make me his advisor. I'd sit at the right hand. Jesus can be on the right hand. I'll, I'll take the left. And I'll help him out. He's been doing this so poorly for so long. You wouldn't be so brash as to say it, but you think it and you live frustrated because you believe that. Oh, listen to me. If you could know what he knows and see what he sees, you would say, oh my goodness, brilliant. There was no better way to do that. There was no better way to do that. Wow, wow. He is so wise, so just, so good, so. But it's because we don't know what he knows. We don't see what he sees. And therefore, you don't trust him and rest in him and worship him while you just don't understand everything. Again, we walk by understanding everything and getting emails from God every morning that explain everything. We walk by faith, not sight. The moment, sight. The moment, the moment, the moment. Oh, oh. But notice something else that's happening. It was happening then, and guess what? It's still happening now. Number two, the accusations of this world are so often slanderous and unjust to us. Look what's going on in verse eight. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. What is going on here? I try to tell you all the time, 
The Bible's not some old Bible that'll tell you about things a long time ago and maybe a little bit about heaven and hell. It is so helpful for today, today, today. He's doing what the spin meisters and spin masters do today on Twitter and social media. He's doing what the major news outlets do. He's doing what your favorite bloggers do as they take you down your little rabbit hole when you think the whole world thinks what you think, but the algorithms are just giving you what you think over and over and over. What's he doing? Ooh, he's using a mixture of truth, error, and exaggeration to convince the king that the people of God are a danger and a threat. Sound familiar? Nothing new under the sun. He starts with the truth. There's a certain people scattered abroad in your kingdom. True. News alert. How long have the people been scattered abroad? A couple hundred years they've been there. You realize that? They've been there a couple hundred years and oh, by the way, They've been some of the best citizens because Jeremiah on their way there as they were being hauled off said, build houses. You got to realize you don't understand what exile was back. They would often take a people and allow them to kind of build houses, plant vineyards, have trees and pray for the prosperity of your city while you're there. These were great citizens. There hasn't been a problem. They've been there for centuries. Not centuries, sorry. Yeah, maybe centuries. That's a hundred. A couple hundred years. They haven't done a revolt. They haven't risen up. Notice even Mordecai's in the administration. These people have not been a problem. Are they different? Yes. Do they have some different laws? Yes. But this is not true about them. Spin, spin, spin. In other words, he convinces them. These people are so different and so difficult and so dangerous, they need to be eliminated. Listen to me. You can expect the same thing to happen to us today. No matter how faithful and supportive you try to be on your job or in this world. I hope you're trying to do that. We should. What you got to get over is expecting to be rewarded for it. Expecting to be recognized. Expecting to be appreciated It's going to happen to you. So don't be shocked and surprised when it does. That's what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. It just might happen that you suffer for doing something right and good. You'll be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. We got Christians today all over America that are characterized by fear and they're so troubled. They're so troubled. They're so troubled. They're so troubled they're causing trouble. And they're trying to get other Christians to be just as troubled. And if you won't be troubled also, you're part of the trouble. I'm like, oh, please stop. Go be troubled all by yourself. You're not helping. Fear, do not fear and don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense for your political position. Oh, oh, no. To make a defense for your economic view. Uh, No, no. We got Christians making a defense about all kinds of things. Don't hear me saying there's not a place to speak about some of that. But it should never be your main thing. What is this about to say? Be prepared 
to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope. Not like, tell me about your political view. Tell me about why you're so angry. Tell me about why you rage like you do. They understand how to do all that. When they see a Christian in the midst of this chaos who has hope, who has hope, why are you still joyful? Why are you peaceful? Why do you have hope? Tell me about that. Be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that you have. Oh, and do it with gentleness and respect. We've got Christians that act like that's out the window now. Oh, it's a new day. You don't understand, Pastor Brad. Ooh, mm, mm. No, I do understand. You're not reading your Bible or getting your marching orders from your Savior. Gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. Ooh, watch this. So that. What's the next word? Say it louder. When. Not if. When you are slandered. Oh, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior. You'll get slandered and you'll be reviled for being good, for doing right. He said you would. So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And let me help you. If you'll read your Bible, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, you will see. I hope this doesn't just freak you out. You will see that it is, because it says, if it is the will of God, right? It is often God's will to let his people suffer for doing good. Mic drop. The Bible shows it all over the place. It is off. It's not like, oh, what's going on? Why didn't God intervene? I did the right thing. He's he's supposed to protect his kids. And it's not what you see in the Bible. It is often the will of God to sovereignly allow his people to suffer for doing good. Good. Now, why would that be? Because in those instances is when people can't figure out, what do you have I don't have? What do you have I don't have? How can you do this? How can you persevere like this? But now here's where I want to dig into what's really going on in the book of Esther and in our world today. Number three, you see the fury of this world. Do you see fury today? The fury of this world, I want you to know, has always been driven by something much deeper and darker than what you can see with the naked eye. The fury of this world has always been driven by something much deeper and darker than what you see with the naked eye. Look at verse five and six again. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. What in the world is, that is so intense and so over the top, isn't it? 
I mean, it's one thing to rage against someone who will not give you the respect you think you deserve from them. But it's something altogether different to say, you know what? Let's take out his entire family. In fact, let's take out every single person related to him in this city. Wait, no, no. I want to wipe out his entire race, men, women, children, in each of the 127 provinces all over this kingdom. I don't want one man left standing from his entire race. Listen to me. There is someone behind this level of fury who is darker and more filled with malice than any one human being could ever muster. Who am I talking about? Satan, the arch enemy of God and all good. Who's out, I hope you realize, who's out to destroy the entire human race, not just the Jews. The entire human race is who he wants to destroy. Because Satan hates God. So let me help you here. Satan hates God. Therefore, he hates all of God's image bearers. Do you realize, people forget in our world of brokenness, Not just Christians, you guys. Every human being who's born into this world. You read Genesis and you see God said, let us make man in our own. And he created male and female in the image of God. It's sad. I've known of instances where because of the brokenness of earthly families, there's a child that reminds someone of the dad they hate. And that child gets grief as well. You just remind him too much of, guess what? Our enemy, Satan, hates not just God, but his image bearers. Even in our brokenness and our mess, we remind him of God. There's things about people that remind him of God. And oh, by the way, he knows that people were created for the glory of God and to spread this glory of God. So he's out to destroy the entire human race. He wants every human being to land in hell with him for it. He knows where he's going. He just wants to see that that place is filled with human beings when he gets there. So right here in the book of Esther, way back in 455, he is trying to snuff out the nation through which the Messiah is going to come. He's like, let's just snuff out this nation of Israel right here and right now. He's trying to snuff out the nation of Israel through whom the Messiah would come because he knows that God, his arch enemy, has promised to send one who will solve our sin problem. And so he's doing everything he can to derail and shatter that promise ever being fulfilled. Oh, listen to me. Haman's edict of annihilation in one day of an entire race is just one small part of the spiritual warfare that's been raging all through history ever since God in Genesis 3 
looked at him and made a promise. Genesis chapter three, verse 15. God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the You realize that word enmity is strong. The word enmity is a deep-seated mutual hatred or animosity and hostility. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. He's talking about, I'm sending a savior who's going to bruise your head. You'll bruise his heel on the cross. Oh, when God made that promise to send a savior to do something about our sin problem, you ready? All hell broke loose and kicked off a war between God and Satan that has been raging ever since. And the book of Revelation shows us the origin of this war and what's really going on in our world today. You guys, wicked rulers and wicked empires are being driven by spiritual forces of darkness. And be careful, because right now some of you are like, yeah, yeah, it's Biden and he's the Antichrist. We love to think those wicked empires of, of course, the group that we don't like, and our group is just lovely. Again, if you knew what God knew and could see what God sees, I don't think God's that impressed with any of the parties. All of us desperately need the hope of a Savior. A Savior. But go to Revelation 12. Some of you are going to be so excited because you keep grabbing me at the door. When are you going to preach Revelation? Well, here's a chapter today. Here's one chapter. Let me give you a little hors d'oeuvre. Just a little hors d'oeuvre. Chapter 12. Some of you are like giddy with excitement. It's like Christmas. Oh, we're in Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. Let me show you the epic battle that's been raging between God and Satan all of history. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This is the nation of Israel. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Satan. Verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. You can see this referred to both in Isaiah and Ezekiel where Satan, when he rebelled against God, he was originally an angel, took a third of the angels with him. And those are the demons and dark angels that work in our world. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He's been out to stop this promise from ever happening. Way back in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, he tried to wipe them out in Egypt, right? Where Pharaoh decided we're gonna kill every baby boy and bring an end to this nation. There was a famine that would have wiped them out, but God placed a Joseph to be number two to feed that nation. 
Satan's been trying to derail this promise all of history and God has been intervening and superseding and sovereignly moving it forward because Satan can't stop it. All he can do is create chaos. You realize even even when Herod, Herod tried to kill once once this promised one was born, Herod decided to kill every boy two years old and under, right? Didn't work. Joseph and Mary fled and hid the child. This is what's been going on. The dragon wants to devour this child. Verse five, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a direct quote from Psalm two. That's what you'll see in Psalm chapter two, talking about God the Father has made King Jesus ruler of this. Every, every nation's gonna bow down to him. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. But Satan keeps trying to stop this. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now watch the words that are about to happen. Because, it, because they inform us on what is going on today. Now war War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent in the garden of Eden. He was a serpent when he came to Eve who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That's what we have going on now. That's where we are now. But oh, look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Salvation has come. Power of God has come. Authority of Jesus Christ has come. The kingdom of God is here now. That's what we've been seeing in the book of Luke. And we'll jump back there again in the fall. The kingdom is here now, salvation is here now, the power of God is here now, and the authority of Christ is here now. But for a time, God in his sovereignty, we don't know why, is still allowing Satan a measure of freedom to do what he does. He's on the prowl, he's roaring, he's seeking to create havoc. But these things that matter most have already happened. See, we live in between the already and the not yet. God has already kept his promise, sent that one who lived and died and rose again and ascended to his right hand, who intercedes for us. But it's not yet finished. But you guys, oh, we are so much further along in history than they were. The people of God in the Old Testament used to live with the not yet of the the Messiah hasn't even come yet. We don't even have the full canon of scripture yet. We don't even have the Holy Spirit living inside of us yet. Oh, he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he intercedes for you day and night. We have God's word. We have God's spirit. All this has already happened. There's only a little bit yet to be done, and we get to be his people. little spoiler alert. There's a great verse in chapter four. For such a time. 
That's this. Mordecai's going to look at Esther and say, perhaps God has raised you up for such a time as this. God has us here for such a time as this. We get to live in this between the already and the not yet. But he's given us everything we need to live for his glory. To live for his glory. I want you to notice some things that stand out in this chapter. Here's the first thing. There's a savior God sent despite all the forces of evil. Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. He's talking about Jesus, our Savior, and that's a quote from Psalm 2. You read your Old Testament, and the people of God, before Jesus came, loved Psalm 2. They had that thing memorized. It gets quoted more than any other Old Testament passage. They loved it because it showed them God is going to send a Messiah. He will be king. No matter what the nations do, they can't stop what God has already purposed. Four times the book of Revelation refers to Psalm 2. And here's one of them. And that phrase, caught up to God and to his throne, seems to be condensing, condensing the entire earthly life of Jesus from his ministry to the cross to the resurrection. So that we go straight from his birth to his ascension at the right hand of God where he intercedes for us. So we do have a savior now. But we do not have a peaceful paradise yet. And some of you need to realize that. Stop expecting it to feel like peacetime. There's a war. There's a war. We're in a war. Notice how God wants us to understand that even though we have a savior, letter B, there's still a war that's raging all around us. And I am not talking about a culture war. I'm not talking about a political war or any other kind of human driven battle. Those things are child's play. That all pales in comparison to the war that he's talking about and I'm talking about. I'm talking about the war that's been declared on the people of God when the Son of God did what he promised to do. Satan said, oh yeah, now I'm going to war on the children of God. He's declared war on us. Never mind who you think it is in this world that scares you most. You need to get focused on who the real enemy is and what the right weapons are to fight with. Who the real enemy is and what the right weapons are to fight with. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious. You could see Haman's fury, but it is fueled and driven by a deeper, darker, far more malicious fury. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Now, don't make a mistake here and think that's just Israel. Oh, yeah, the Jews have really gotten it. You need to realize he's talking about you. He's talking about us because he gives the clarifying phrases next. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. I tell you all the time, a believer is someone who believes that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what the scriptures testify that he did. Do you believe he is who he says he is and that he did what the scriptures testify? And are you trying to keep the commandments of God? Then he's declared war on you. He went off. He went off 
to make war on the rest of her offspring. So when you think about this world that you're living in today, do you ever think of it in these terms? Look at me. You could, and you should, and you would, if you would turn off the news, shut down your little blogs, pull back from your little rabbit trail hole, and pick up your Bible. You would realize, oh, my goodness. Oh, There's an unseen, you realize you guys, there's an unseen enemy that keeps this world churning and burning and turning in on itself and devouring each other. And our enemy Satan loves what happened in the last two years where now we've even got Christians just devouring each other. It's bad enough that the world hates us, you guys. But to have Christians in the church of Jesus Christ turn on each other has been all a part of our enemy's plan. And those that are doing it have lost the big picture. We have more in common than different. I'm gonna say it, the wildest, most left-leaning, liberal, voting Christian has more in common with the most hard right Christian than an unbeliever. Because you both are in Christ You both have the spirit of Christ. You both have the hope of heaven. So act like it. Live like it. He never said we should devour each. There's always been differences. Stand if you speak in tongues. No, I'm kidding. But some speak in tongues and some don't. Some drink in moderation to the glory of God and some don't. Some homeschool and some public school. Some celebrate Halloween, some don't. Some talk about Santa Claus, some don't. I could just go down. Some are eating clean and some are eating fast food. Do I need to go on? Some love country, some love rap. Guess what? Some will be more liberal politically and some will be more conservative. And that is not what matters most. And getting every Christian to vote the way you vote is not the answer for this world. We're going to see the answer for this world in this chapter And we all have it and share it together. Oh, the real enemy behind all this massive, deceptive, furious, and frantic mess is Satan who knows his time is limited. He hates God. He hates goodness. And he hates the people of God who try to live for the glory of God and try to fulfill the purposes of God in our world. If that's you and you want to live for the glory of God and you would love to fulfill the purposes of God, which let me help you. Purpose of God of having you here is to share the gospel, be salt and light, bring hope to a broken world. If you want to live for the glory of God and be all about the purposes of God, he hates you. He's going to war against you. And here's some good news, bad news. Our God is omnipresent and unlimited in resources. He can be everywhere at the same time. Our enemy, Satan, is finite. Did you know that? Super encouraging. He has one-third dark angels. He's got to decide where he's going to work, where he's going to go. Guess what? He chooses the Christian who's trying to live for what matters most. You want to live for houses, cars, politics? He'll leave you alone. Yeah, good. You're distracted. Great. 
you want to live for what matters most, all hell will start to break out in your life. And you'll say, what is going on? I'm trying to do the right thing. That's the point. Now the enemy is coming after you. And I don't want you to be scared and say, I think I'm going to live ungodly. So he'll leave me alone. (laughs) Live for what matters most. But recognize you're going to get it. You're going to be in a war and you're going to sense it. But he tells us what we can do about it. Look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Satan, listen, Satan knows that he's defeated, you guys. He knows that he's defeated, but he doesn't give up like a rabid, wounded animal that's near death. He still wants to kill as much as he can for as long as he can. And so he goes after the people of God to keep us from doing what God's called us to do here. Evangelize. Be light in a dark place. Be salt. Be the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Be givers of hope. Be those that lay down your lives and sacrifice for others. And that word pursued right there in verse 13 of, Re- of Revelation 12 is the same word, dikao, that gets used in the rest of the book of Acts in the New Testament for persecution. He's not just chasing you, my friend. He's trying to persecute. So if it feels like you're getting persecution, yeah, that's all being driven by our enemy, Satan. Listen to me. Even though you live in America, praise God. You can be grateful for that. But sometimes we lose perspective, you guys. Right now, today, 2022, 360 million of your brothers and sisters in Christ live in countries where they face intense persecution every day just for trying to follow Christ. That's one in seven believers worldwide. One in seven believers worldwide faces intense persecution. I'm talking about the threat of death. I'm talking about being abducted. I'm talking about having your young girls taken from the home and raped and made to marry wicked people. I'm talking about heinous, awful stuff that you could read about if you wanted to, because CNN News and Fox News isn't going to tell you about. But it's happening today because our enemy Satan is going after the offspring And he wants to persecute and keep you from doing what God's called you to do. And so the answer is not politics. The answer is found in the power of prayer. And understanding who the real enemy is and what the right weapons are to fight with. we got too many Christians who are focused on the wrong enemy and using the wrong weapons. Focused on the wrong enemy and using the wrong weapons because they're reading some other things far more than this. You start reading this and it'll begin begin to come into focus. Oh, the real enemy. Oh, and what are the right weapons I should be fighting with? That's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 6, you guys. That's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 6 when he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes 
of the devil. He's raging right now. He's coming after you and he's got devices and schemes and plans to take you down. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We got Christians wrestling against flesh and blood thinking that is the problem. That is the answer. It's not. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Look at this. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. I've told you before, taking up the whole armor of God doesn't mean stand next to your bed and pretend you just put on that little armor. Here's the belt of truth and the helmet of a... It means what those things represent, do it. You don't put on the belt of truth unless you make time to turn off the TV and sit with the word of truth. You didn't put it on if you didn't read it. The helmet of salvation is that you're, you're knowing God's word so much that you're, you're sure that your biggest problem has been solved. And so you have peace and you have hope. When he talks about the boots that help you stand, you're secure when you know he's saved you and that can never be taken away from you. The sword of truth is the word of God, not your favorite article you send to everybody. These things, you have to do them to be putting on the armor of God. But notice there's some really good news tucked into this scary, scary chapter of Revelation 12. There's a power we have that Satan can't stop. Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. We've got the blood of the lamb. What's that mean? It means, oh, your biggest problem's been solved. You've been forgiven. You are not on your way to hell. So you're free to live differently. You're no longer a slave of Satan. You don't have to do what he says. You don't have to think how he thinks. And you don't have to listen to your flesh anymore. Oh, the word of their testimony. What's that mean? Do you realize God has actually purposed sovereignly that when you give a testimony of what God has done in your life, he can make that powerful? Real testimony of someone. The word of your testimony. Your testimony. Has he changed your life? Have you told anybody? Has he changed your life? Is it so rich and real to you that it just bubbles out? It's hard for you to keep it in? You talk about Jesus and what he's done for you. The word, he'll use the word of our testimony in someone else's life. So you've got a purpose and a reason for living now that's bigger than houses and cars and getting married and grandchildren. And they love not their lives even unto death. You realize the greatest fear that human beings live with is death. And Satan owns it and loves it and that's taken from him. No more fear of death. I know where I'm going. So I can risk. I can risk now. What's the worst they can do to me? Kill me. Oh, okay. That's how so many Christians have lived that has shocked people. They're willing to die because no longer do we have to fear death and hold on to our lives. We can let go of our lives and risk for the glory of God. And Satan doesn't know what to do with that. The power of his blood, the word of our testimony, and they lived no longer hanging on to their lives. And that leads to my final point back in Esther. The worst they can do can't change what he's already done, you guys. The worst they can do can't change what he's done. 
What Christ has done on the cross cannot be undone. Look at what I'm talking about. Because our Western calendar that we go by causes us to not really pick up on what is happening in verse 13. Look at verse 13 of Esther 3. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, kill, annihilate the Jews in one day. What day? The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. You realize what day that is? They're rolling the dice to pick the day to annihilate the Jews. And that is the eve of the Passover. Oh, what a coincidence. Oh, shut up. No coincidence. Haman rolled the dice, but God chose the day. As a vivid reminder, Haman's not the first to try to destroy the people of God and thwart the promises of God. And did it work? Pharaoh tried to wipe out the people of God and said, kill every baby. And instead, the angel of death killed every firstborn in every Egyptian house while he passed over every Jewish home that had put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. And ever since then, they'd been celebrating Passover. Oh, but there's more. That same date, by no accident, there was another eve of the Passover. You realize when Jesus directly went into Jerusalem, we're gonna see it as we go through Luke, where he, there's gonna be a time where he sets his face like flint and he's headed to Jerusalem, not just for any old day. He kept saying, my hour's not come, my hour's not come. The hour he chose to do what he did was also the eve of the Passover when he was beaten and mocked and spat on, and then led outside the city to die on a cross like a common criminal in the most painful, shameful way. Jesus did that as the final, ultimate, all-sufficient, never-needs-to-be-repeated Lamb of God. We live on the other side of that. So that your biggest problem's been solved. The worst they can do to you guys cannot change what he's done. What he's done. What he's done. God designed. Even in that moment on the cross when you're like, oh, what's happening? What's happening? When evil forces thought they'd won the day. Triumph. They've crushed all hope. Oh, once again, sovereignty of God. God designed for that wicked moment on the cross to accomplish his sovereign purpose. In paying our sin debt once and for all by his perfect son that now human beings created in his image can be forgiven and brought into the family of God. Listen to how Dr. Luke describes this moment. And listen for the sovereignty of God. Acts chapter 4 verse 27. For truly in this city. Talking about Jerusalem. They're preaching now after the resurrection. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Real people did real wicked things that they chose to do. Guess what? God sovereignly worked in that moment. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They did it, but it accomplished God's purposes. Oh, listen to me. God's hand and God's plan is what matters most because it's the one that will be done. Amen. Will be done. You're living right now. 
with God's hand in your life and God's plan. God's hand and God's plan. It doesn't matter what circumstances look like. It doesn't matter what people bring against you. God's hand and God's plan are working. And that's the one that will be done. Oh, God, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for a record of history. Thank you for allowing us a little glimpse behind the curtain of what really is going on, who's the real enemy, and what are the right weapons so that we can live for what matters most. Oh, use us to be your people who conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony to others as we do not hold on to our lives. We're not afraid of death. Oh God, save people in America and all over this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.